When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I haven't said this very often, but I'm going to use tonight as an excuse to start saying it uh, more and more often, and that is simply, what does anyone out there make of what I'm about to read from, what I'm about to say? I know that at the end of each episode, for those of you who make it, uh, there is, uh, I do give the email address where you can contact me, and that email address is at the bottom of each post description as well. And that email address is humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. But I especially want to know what you think of what I'm about to read uh, tonight. I've mentioned a few times that uh, this year, I've spent a good part of this year, writing poems about Shakespeare and in the voice of Shakespeare and imagined voice of Shakespeare. And... The impulse to write it actually began in the middle of recording an episode of this podcast, and I'll mention it when I get to that poem. And uh, being that it is a work in progress, and that I won't be reading all of it, and that there's certainly probably a good deal of editing to be done, and many more poems to be added, I do just wonder, what does anyone out there make of this tonight? Uh, It seems that uh, for someone who doesn't have a direct outlet to the larger poetry magazines in the world, and who doesn't have uh, a following or really even a presence at all on social media, it seems that a place to share something like this would be on uh, a podcast. So I feel lucky to have this space in which to do it. Now, as we know, Shakespeare was born in 1564, and by the time he was sometime between his uh, 25th, you might say, or or 20th and 25th year, uh, he made his way to London. And by then, he had also left uh, his wife, Anne Hathaway, and his three children uh, behind in Stratford-upon-Avon. So I begin the poem about Shakespeare with a sort of prologue of what it was like for him to arrive in London. And this is what that sounds like. It says, My life in London began in the mind, and it remains an imagined city. No matter how long I linger, London will only live as my own creation, more a memory out of my own head, a stage that had been waiting since before the Romans for me to step upon it. This is the curse of my trade, that the world passes into poetry while I watch, and with such constant, untiring force. Only Stratford is less unreal to me, 
the place of my first original forms. And London is merely that village lifted to a deeper, more populous music. A speech that shook my spirit and still does, drumming me bodiless into the night, longing for touch, but long since satisfied to be smoke in the air, caught in the rafters. And it's at this point that the arrangement of the poems becomes chronological, and we go back to Shakespeare's earliest years in Stratford-upon-Avon. The first section says, Henley Street, that is the street that he grew up on. Henley Street is still hidden within me. The butter and honey put in my mouth only moments after emerging from my mother. And that large house in Stratford, the one with many rooms but no secrets, where nothing was ever hidden by silence, became the butter and honey of my plays, the place of suddenness, revelation, reunion, self-inquiry, and crime, professions of love and their protestation, the setting and stage for family life, or the undoing of mind and country. What child doesn't feel that his first home is the scene of all human interaction? But what child never tires of that impulse? The house on Henley Street had its pictures, its tapestries, the first invented faces and scenes for me to study, costume and pose. And my father's workshop opened onto the street as a place for daily performance, to barter and brag, to gossip and speak. The first stage I knew was that morning road, while the second world, an entire world, was Ovid, Ovid and his Book of Changes, a complete population sprung from one mind. None of it knew, but all of it remade. Imitation, a more complete invention. Even as a boy, Ovid's joy was obvious. The delight he took in simply telling. The pleasure in music of creation bound into story, character, and action. I was lucky to have him so early an invoked spirit and first specimen. And the second section continues with these early memories and leads into uh, what uh, biographers assume Shakespeare would have witnessed, which is the arrival of the Queen's Men, the, the touring theater companies from the capital that would have uh, toured and arrived and played in Stratford when Shakespeare was a boy. My memories begin with the river. The running Avon I could hear everywhere in Stratford. Just as I could hear the bells call the living to commemorate the dead, or tell me it was time for school. Water and the bells and the thrushes song, the larks. The same bell and water and bird song heard for centuries by everyone who lived from February down to November the round from sowing to reaping, from spring to summer, the rhythm of heat and chill and the pig-killing preceding winter, the great long year rhyming and coming round again, as if it were a play put on for me to understand and comprehend 
how repetition dances with variation, how improvisation and sudden change have no better teacher than time, the year, and nature. Even history is nothing next to the earth's broad moods and sympathies. So, when the Queen's men arrived in Stratford and took the parts of acrobat and actor, clown and king and courtier, and their plays were a porridge of farce and piety, high seriousness and necessary comedy, all cooking in the same scene, this wasn't news to me, that performance was the rapid exchange of different parts, a face and a mask for each encounter. Since the light of Henley Street showed me as much, that acting is our central occupation, adapting ourselves to every hour. There is nothing that is not of interest. Every word and situation in trade, every expert term or shout in the street. And if you find a life to interrogate, and then a hundred and then a thousand, the threads of each can be pulled apart and rearranged into how many stories, how many imagined lives. The constant accumulation of human details is all there is. The sympathetic ear that fuels the pen to provoke them again. Anecdote and memory made revenant and moving the world to familiarity. To weep at a story or laugh at a life they no longer remember was theirs first. And so you see in about two and a half pages he comes to see that Ovid, that his father's shop, that his own home, that uh, his town and uh, the natural rhythms of the year, and finally the players who come to play, they are all basically doing the same thing, which is repetition with variation, change and action, and, um, and playing parts, a new mask for each encounter. This is something that you get from Shakespeare, and, and as well also is just action. Even the soliloquies are bunched in between action, and they sort of are a break from action or they presage action. Um, there is no sitting around, even, even in Hamlet, if you look at it, even then there really isn't all that much sitting around and thinking. There is all of this, the need to tell the story and the need to tell it, uh, with, with great energy and great joy and with a sense of action in it. And the next section is very small because I wasn't sure where to put it, but it seemed uh, that it couldn't go after the section about Anne Hathaway, and it couldn't go any earlier in his memories about Henley Street, and it's an imagined scene of a young Shakespeare going to one of these, uh, the performances of one of these uh, touring players might give, only he doesn't go to the theater, he goes to the field uh, surrounding the, the makeshift theater, and this is what it says. I sat one afternoon in a large field and watched the crowd swarm the theater there, 
a great unruly gathering pressing me. And I saw them vanish into that space, the story and the buildings swallowing them for the hours of pageant and play. I slept in those same fields so that later I could see them in the early evening, emerging as if from the underworld and enlivened by what they had witnessed, and their homeward bodies again pressed me. And I thought, what a thing to give my life to. The stage, sometimes a large room or a spare yard, sometimes boards placed over beer barrels or a farmhouse, a wall and a stairwell, all of it made real by convincing speech, by the pact made with a turbulent crowd, moved by the majesty of our illusions, the drink and energy of good stories, the mutual joy rising from poetry. And here begins uh, perhaps the central crux of these poems, which is his relationship with Anne Hathaway, and more generally his relationship to love, to women and men, I suppose, um, to bodies in general, to the realization that he uh, was most at home writing his poems, writing his dramas. And if you look at biographies of Shakespeare, there seem to be uh, a few ways you could go. Uh, in one sense, he was the worldly guy. Um, he could have uh, had his share of women in London, and some assume that he did. There's another sense, uh, and evidence from the plays, a sort of disgust with the idea of physical love and sexuality. And if you read that autobiogra autobiographically, alongside other things, there is a sense that uh, perhaps he sort of pulled back and uh, wasn't really a part of the crowd. It's also possible, Shakespeare being Shakespeare, he's just a person like anyone else, is that he would have could have gone through phases of, of these things. It doesn't have to be one or the other. But since uh, I, f I found that these poems are not just about Shakespeare, and they're not just about um, my way of writing about Walt Whitman either, which I'll get to, uh, but they're also in a very large sense about me. And I don't, and I didn't think, and I still don't think that uh, um, I've learned a lesson lately that uh, certain poets, certain people, are very good and um, and should be uh, listened to telling stories about themselves. Poets, some poets are very good at doing the autobiographical. I am not, and I'm guessing that Shakespeare was not either. Uh, Whitman was, of course, but we see the limitations of that, that he sort of lost his wind fairly early on and had no other voice to go to. Um, but in any case, so this is, obviously, it's uh, a poem about someone, Shakespeare, that we know very little about, and it is further filtered by how many centuries since he was alive, how many centuries of guesswork about his life, and then trying to shove that into poetry as well. So there's an awful lot here that is not just Shakespeare, but this is my take on Shakespeare falling in love with Anne Hathaway and then 
uh, leaving her and leaving his family for London. And it says this. And then there she was, or always had been. Anne Hathaway, some name in my ears. Anne Hathaway from a friend's family. Older than me and the eldest daughter. Brown hair and a farmer's body brewing ale. And getting at the butter and the bread, always busy. And then, busy with me. If she couldn't read or write, she could talk. Her words the most natural performance. And she could listen and watch, witnessing my earliest speeches and poetry. I was never so comfortable again and so unafraid than when I discovered ways to love her, to please another mind, to uncover another's heart and flesh, two young bodies already old with talk. And I imagine that line speaks for many, many people out there remembering their first serious loves, two young bodies already old with talk. But here he realizes that uh, love is not enough, and he says, but my love was less than my wit, my inventiveness. There's nothing to match that energy. My mind and then my body full of words, like a child's top spun just to watch it spin, like water that cannot keep from boiling. I saw that Anne and my words weren't two songs that I could learn to share myself among, but that only one could truly own me, woo me, seduce me, win me, and that Anne wasn't that one, that nobody could be, that compared to my plays no human being could renew themselves so constantly, and that if Anne had a similar impulse, I would also wilt in her eyes and become some plaything. And while I've paused to ask why, why the filling of some overflowing world, why my mind and heart should be so profuse and lavish such care on mere scenery, but pause and become stayed in the presence of someone more alive and various than any name called out upon the stage. My only answer is always longing. Only longing burns my flesh properly. And sometimes I can only keep from despising all that my body has needed and done by putting that disgust into a speech. Sometimes the waste of infatuation is only justified by the scenery, a page the better replacement for the bed, or indeed the act outdone by an act on the stage, and with all the world looking. What a relief, thousands, instead of two. And here now, in this next section, he is in London, and for my mind anyway, this is the part that sounds most like um, Whitman to me. This sounds like uh, one of Whitman's short poems. This is what he would say. I would see you and touch you with my eyes. I would wrap you inside my feigning words and hide you behind a pose or a plot. 
I would save you from the day or the time when I saw you in your marvelous flesh as you passed with a gesture and a joke, hurried by appointment and appetite, and unable to pause or see my eyes and how they preserve you, a single breath I love and set living on the stage. And it goes on to say, the dark lady of my sonnets is ink, and the fair youth there is an unmarked page. They are dark and fair because they are slight. They lack the scenery and the surprise of the stage. They are empty of timber and tone, and the high gathered reaction of actor and crowd, the player and played. But I love them, bodiless, dark, and fair, because before they are seen I hear them, before Burbage goes at them they are mine, before they are quoted by enthusiasts or pirated into bad quartos, they stand in my room, naked and begging for speech, and their pleasure is my pleasure, and they let me watch and I watch while they act, when what they say is still my own secret. And the tension in these poems is between that, how enthralled he is to have these people living inside him and being able to give voice to them. But then the moments when he is not pleased with that, when he says this. But then the days when it's impossible and the celibate body rebels from the promiscuous mind and memory asks for more than the table of restraint and the food that is only looked upon when only, when only the writing hand has any pleasure. But why shouldn't the whole body approach that woman there? Why just the eyes? It's never led me anywhere but down. Love is a plot that I love to write, but love is nothing I can pretend to live. And when I was when I started to write these, uh, I came across a remark by somebody who said, there are no good marriages in Shakespeare's plays except uh, perhaps the Macbeths. So that's how this next section starts, another way of uh, adding to all of these themes. There are no good marriages in my plays, no happy ones, no partnerships, unless you count Macbeth and his wife, one vicious mind shared out over two brittle bodies. I'm good at that, I'm satisfied and pleased, where the ghost of the nursery hovers. I'm good at impossible betrothals. I'm good at jealousy, early or late, and the lightning of meeting and the drags of regret or old age, at the sewer of bad children, inevitably awful. What I can't do, what nobody can do, is turn a good marriage into drama. The jealousy that such scenes would provoke, the bitterness over love and union, over beauty and time and steadfastness, is not a feeling that will fill the seats, and it's not one I can dwell on directly out of the bitterness of a captive life.
And the end of that section, um, end of this section, might be my favorite part of all of this. And um, I'll just read it. It isn't enough to be beautiful, to shine in mind, in body, or habit. Beauty must be possessed, relished, enjoyed. The mind given to expansion and depth. The day and year to rounds of renewal. The beauty of time, and time the teacher of rhythm, change, and accumulation. And the body should be used, should be seen, should be longed for and savored. The body should amuse and make us smile, make us laugh. The body should be free to act or rest. The body, fearless when touched or touching. One body and another, devoted to calm adoration, to calm or to fire. There is beauty in the body's appetites. The only other drug than words I know. The only regret and the only waste. The mind wasted by overwork. Habit ruined by ill-discipline and decay. As if hands were made to hold books. And eyes were forged by the mind of God. To what? To watch the play of love? To the look of companionship? the appearance of fulfillment or its fall, the words already written and ready-made, passionless, unlived memorization. And in this next section, he imagines the lives of three people. His, uh, well, I'll name them as I read them. Uh, three very different people and uh, just his reaction to their to their deaths in his own life. The first is his son, Hemnet. It says this. The sadness is that I've had ideas alive longer than my son's 11 years, and that those ideas, the sounds of words, the company of characters unwritten, continue to put on shape and substance while my child's vitality is detained underground an impossibility. I'm ashamed of this garden where my wit can still catch the sun and swallow the rain, can still take pleasure in the overflowing of rhetoric and story and staging, while Stratford, which nursed me and my mind, should take him back and never send him out. What are words to his form fully dressed? What are my words to him repeating them? If grief will keep me close to him, Hamnet, I'll make a friend of grief, be fond of it, and we three will go walking together. And this next part is about the death and uh, Shakespeare's friendship with Christopher Marlowe. It also just his reaction to those of his contemporaries who lived their lives out in a way that we would say was the uh, the cliche bohemian rather than sitting back as Shakespeare seemed to have done uh, with immense discipline, getting the work done and not mistaking his own life for those of the characters he was writing about. 
Mr. Christopher Marlowe, he hunts me. His nonsense about tobacco and boys. His secret work for or against Catholics. His familiars in the Privy Council who kept him safe but also got him killed. His atheism, lust, and alchemy. His beginnings not so different than mine that led him to university and distraction. To the dilution and spread of the focus power and exuberance I myself only offer to my words. His poetry pummeled me, his love for threatening the world with high astounding terms. But I soon learned his tricks and overlapped them. So when he died the way was clear for me, the road crowded with no equals or rivals, a knife to the eye over an unpaid bill like a burst dam in my mind, and permission to play to the end, but live with restraint. Let the poets, tired out with all this, destroy themselves with drink and jealousy, the ones bored with life and the writer's silence, or in love with blasphemy or mere fame. Let them burn their university wit and go down in their volatility, their intensity, rages, and their hungers, they'll never wield longer than a few years, confusing themselves with their characters and their instability, with godliness as if creation were a thunderstorm of the senses, rather than the slow sound of discipline and accumulation, of sometimes listening more than living, of their never being rest or release. Let them waste, deflate, and bury themselves and let them blame youth, age, or the wide world for what they were simply afraid to do, loving taste rather than the thought of it, and the held bodies of men and women instead of how they stood or smelt or felt when poured through the fine screen of poetry, words that shape life and obliterate it. And the last one is just a poem about his one of his brothers who died during Shakespeare's lifetime. It is puzzling to think of my brother, born of the same mother, dead before me, never seized by marriage or by children, never, it seems, besotted or consumed, even by mistake, no rash decisions, no impulse towards lust or procreation or the irrational desire to see a drop of his own life in a child's face, a child's moods or inclinations, the rest mysteriously new and separate. What imagination was in his head? What words, what worlds, what possible happiness, having never left Henley Street or Stratford? Perhaps I judge him out of jealousy. Perhaps the love I claim for the clamor of my mind when ideas burst and hatch with endless, unbalanced inspiration. Perhaps I envy the quiet I assume to give him, the peace that never has to be put down, a morning, afternoon, and evening overrun by no desire to invent. And now he is in the ground, gratefully. What peace he and the dead must know. What peace... 
And so these poems began in April, I think, March or April, I think April, when I was down here recording the episode on Walt Whitman and sex, whether or not he was gay or straight or whatever it was, how he approached romantic relationships and physical relationships. And at one point, uh, the biographer that I was reading from says that Whitman fell back on longing. And that was a word that struck with me, stuck with me. And I thought at first to write a poem, and it stuck, struck me so much, I was thought, let's write some poems about Whitman, or in the words of Whitman. But then I thought uh, that would be extremely difficult to do, and not as interesting uh, to do it so directly about Whitman, in the same way that it, I didn't think it would be interesting or successful to write as directly about myself. And suddenly the image of Shakespeare came to mind, and uh, Peter Aykroyd's biography of Shakespeare, which I had listened to once or twice in the past. And I thought, why not Shakespeare? Uh, that would be a good uh, ground to pour all of this into. And so this was the very first poem in this series, and it happens to lie uh, near the end of what I have right now. And it says this, The stage shows me the wisdom of longing, to look, to gaze, but to only fulfill through acting the part or writing the words. I have never known any other answer to life other than the intimacy of speech, the silent speech of watching, the held back words, turned into a story on the stage. The love I know is a conversation and ambition but a soliloquy, and all of it is talking to myself. I have no desire to be a lover or a king, young or old or a traveler, when I can write them all and be sated. Thought alone consumes me so totally that I've never longed for experience, and excitement or sadness only come when I think of the beauty of a man or a woman and imagine myself with them and give them a soul and a sound I will never hear from their mouths or feel from their bodies as they pass on the street. I watch and touch with my heart and create the quiet I couldn't bear in person. My room and my window are history saving myself the high struggle of speech by giving the whole world the words to say while I listen, live, and am left alone. How I love the mystery of engagement. How I steal an old story and improve the poetry. How I surround my people with dynamism, rhythm, and cadence, but somehow they can also back away the central particles of the drama, but also its detached shadow, removed and severed as I am, their creator, but with no final care in their outcome. I am here to transcribe vitality. I am here to transcribe vitality. And then, as usual, he goes back to doubting that point of view. 
in this next section. Where is the error of living in the mind or the mistake in living through others? A child learns to live by imitation. The pious are refined by the divine model. Lovers become one another and our kings disappear behind titles and the generations that bend their backs. We are images more than anything and we imagine nearly everything more than we ever experience them. Yet somehow I am the one eluding life, as if everyone isn't equally elusive and comparatively fugitive. I have no more absconded from the terror of life than anyone who wears their clothes just to hide their body and heart, or who locates in old words or the newest thoughts the only way they can attempt to speak. But where you despise the crowd you're trapped with, I have never allowed myself that sour snare. You argue in the street while I write a play, and this flood from my fingers, stories pouring out and those shadows in me finding form, this love of movement and vitality terrifies me, astounds me. It won't stop. Like a baited bear, my mind lashes out, and nothing it confers is ever finished. But then back to confidence. I will continue, as I always have, willing myself forward regardless, a thousand bodies playing in my bones, the will of millions within my veins, the beauty of men and women all bodies, and the glory of ambiguity, and the only God I know, the only God I've learned from, willingly brimming with every form. To will is what I am, to watch these things appear from my pencil and shake the spirit of my silent room. What is lust and bawdry compared to this? A rut with our clothes on or a bad joke? What are titles, names, and categories but the scared comforts of singular lives that have never known a quadrillion? My body barely some smoke that they shake their experience into. Pure rhetoric, pure joy, the sound of overflowing life. And in this next section, he picks up on that. The story must partly be spectacle, pure spectacle. A tale told without high pageant, or a show that is put on which ignores the demand for narrative. They're both blank, either too high or too low. Mix plain speech with poetry, piety with comedy, the murder of a king with a porter who needs to take a piss. God made the world with no demarcations. And weeping is never ruined by humor, or a good joke, or a bad word poisoned by their proximity to tragedy. Laughter and lamentation only exist because of this mix, this miscellany. And why shouldn't I double myself and play both the ghost of the dead king and his usurper? These aren't sermons or dumb lessons I write but shows filled with life and all its mixture. 
If life is my aim, how can I take sides? And if I want it to convince and move, how can my plays betray anything but a universal sympathy that mocks what I happen to love and gives what I deplore sometimes an immense eloquence? Those men and women I see on the stage are not living collections of motives or husks of emotional mathematics and my pen is no dissector's scalpel. I am interested in energy, not in politics or my own opinions. My job is not to convert or convince, but to show life alive in the sea of the lived moment. And where does motive survive in this storm? Some simple clarification of violence, laughter, or history? To express my own anger or affection, this is what the weak do, and their words die after their moment of power has passed. Go to the preacher for the child's moral, and come to me for the experience. I am most present when I am absent. I am a hand and a pen and a desk. I am fingertips an inch away, but invisible, never touching, not there. I am eyes in the crowd, ears in the room. I am what I am, mute in most company, and with no form or body to be seen. No one would hear the unwritten real me, so I dress it in drugs, in Greece or in Rome and the thousands who pack the globe to watch are the ones that I need but cannot understand. I am bound to the mast of my opposites, who would rather watch than make for themselves. And the next section says this, maybe my mistake with Hamlet, and I, and I like that I was able to do that, uh, maybe my mistake with Hamlet was to give Ophelia the madness and love that the young prince could fear from a distance or put on and off as was convenient. But he suffered from deliberation and doubt, two diseases I also own. I fear the life of titles and action just as much as the unhinged mind and heart. True madness and real love are beyond my pen, because there is no iambic for them, no rhymes to describe such loss of control. So, madness in another, and, hidden behind the scaffold of a second plot, or a pattern of youth or comedy, is the kind of love I've only longed for. The stage is no place for reality, not bitter reality, not brutal reality, but for boundaries and expected traffic, for two hours of entertaining time. And who would sit through such hours of Ophelia, or the brain rack of love between two people who know no else, and who are their own stage, their own audience, or whose moods, depressions, dolor, or madness are so slight, private, and unplayable, that we should be ashamed to watch and listen. You and I, we 
want the safety of what seems, after all. We want to hear the stage creak, not our own deafening house. We want the crowd of players and those in their seats, not the naked intimacy of two. Hamlet will make them smile for centuries, and Ophelia become a pretty picture. It was only after writing that that I realized who would sit through such hours of Ophelia that he actually did do that. He did that with King Lear, but he only did it once, and seems to have been changed thereafter from the experience. Um, but that's for another podcast, especially as this one is getting quite long. This is the very last section. And this is about, uh, the first part of this is about uh, his daughter Judith, who did survive him. There will be no poems about my end, or about my daughter, witty as I am. Poetry and plays cannot touch that calm, the calm of death, or the calm that kin can bring. I have authored myself and her, that is all. And between us we are spread over my words. From Anne came my jealousy and longing, my lengthened youth of pretend and costume, and my hidden monastic middle age, a nearly celibate eye in London, my imagination some purgatory that my plays sentenced me to and freed me from. Give me a late fever or a hard drink. Share too fully with old friends. Put this balding universe and its body in the ground, and it will still burn in Susanna's head, differently, harmoniously. The weight of life and imagination, of action, reflection, and memory, will rest more sweetly in her, as it should. And I said Judith, I meant Susanna, as the poem says, his daughter Susanna. And these are the last ten lines here, and I just want to say, for those who are still listening, I don't usually say this, but if you've made it this far, send this along. Share this with anyone you think would also enjoy it. Let me know what you think of it. And here's the very last part. How long have we been dancing together? How much laughter? How many jigs and jokes? How many identities late revealed? How much doubling of man and woman? How much devotion to energy and change and the enjoyment of impossibility? And how much affection from the pit and the seats, their eyes and ears bodiless as they live another life? and can forget their own while the players become part and costume, and as I neglect my own high loneliness and silence, my reservation and withdrawal, to imagine the entire spectacle, perhaps the oldest of our human joys, forgetting our own lives through imitation of another life, through music and dance, through uttering what we would never say or of going where our courage fails us, 
but needing it so much we are convinced by the show. What is this vitality, this need for imagination, that makes life bearable and beautiful at all? Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.